Good morning, everybody. I love being greeted by name. That's cool. It's one of the benefits of being in a small church, right? Uh, if you are visiting for the first time today, welcome. We uh, are grateful that you're here. And as you heard in their response, my name is Gerald. I'm one of the elders here. And it's a privilege to stand before you this morning and, and ask you this question. What's the significance of this date? One year ago. Oh, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah Kelly says that one year ago today, we had our opening service in this location. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. So, yeah, we have a lot to be grateful for. The Lord has been at work in each of our lives, and He's done some significant work right here in this room through the teaching and the preaching of His Word and through the, the corporate worship of the people as a body as we come together week in and week out. And... Be the messy bride that Kenny was talking about together, collectively, and recognizing our infinite need and recognizing the infinite supply of our gracious Lord and how everything that we need for life and godliness has been recorded right here in the Word. And that's why we come on Sunday mornings and we open it up and study it. So please open with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. And as we do, we are going to take a look at who Jesus is again. Mark has been presenting Jesus to us, and we see that he is a, at this point in the book, even just one chapter in, we're starting with verse 1 of chapter 2 this morning, Jesus is a wildly popular person. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is it about this Jesus that makes people flock to him? Why are people drawn to Jesus? Any ideas about that? I, I see heads nodding. You're recognizing that people are flocked to him. Any ideas about why people might be drawn to Jesus as Mark has presented him so far? He's healing people. He's healing people. Yeah, he's doing things that uh, doesn't happen every other day, right? Or every day. He's speaking, he's speaking with authority. Yeah, he goes around from synagogue to synagogue and he teaches and preaches the word and he does so in a way that the crowd says, we haven't seen something like this. He teaches like one who has authority. And then they add the not as the scribes. So apparently in contrast to the scribes, Jesus has a level of teaching authority when he opens up the word. The expectation of a Messiah? People are waiting for a Messiah, right? Physical, political king. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're waiting for this physical and political king. So when Jesus comes on the scene as a man and starts talking using terms that are making reference to that sort of thing, they're, they're wondering if this is the one. So Mark has been revealing Jesus to us progressively. And in chapter 2, I think he, he steps it up a notch. And I think the thing that really has been drawing people to Jesus is... Jesus is revealing by degrees his divine nature. They see his human nature because he's a man standing before them, teaching with authority. He's a man standing before them, proclaiming healing to people with physical afflictions. And now in chapter 2, we're going to catch a glimpse of Jesus' divine nature in a way that we haven't seen prior to this in this book. So what is it that draws people to Jesus? I think it's His divine nature. You see, everybody, you and me, has been made in the image of God. 
And there's something that we recognize when we're confronted with God himself. And that's what the people that, are, that are, we are going to read about in Mark chapter 2 are going to see. They're going to be confronted with this man, Jesus, who makes a claim to divinity, who makes a claim to be God. And that's what we're going to find today. Um, let's pause and ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll read, beginning in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Heavenly Father, we come before you now thanking you and praising you for your word, asking, Lord, that you would send forth your spirit, give us ears to hear, that you would fill me and help me to be clear in my explaining this passage, and that, Lord, you would, you would have your way in us and through us. You would help us to get to know you better. You would help us to get to know ourselves better, and that you would um, help us to grow in humility and dependence upon you as we see the depth of our need and as we see the source of your supply. We love you and praise you. Commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. People are flocking to Jesus. We've seen that as he preaches, people show up. He teaches with authority. And in chapter 1, verse 33, it says that the whole city was gathered together at the door. They are all flocking to him in order to bring those who had needs, those who had diseases, those who were seeking a cure. And it says that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out demons. And then in the midst of that, the whole city is gathered at the door and we heard last week that he, thought, he discerns it's a good idea to go to other towns, to leave the whole city who is there to hear him and to go to other towns and preach the word there because that is why he had come. That is why he had come out. And Eric taught you that that actually was an act of compassion to leave behind people who were looking for physical healing in order to go to other towns and to proclaim the gospel of God there. That they might have a glimpse of God and who He is and be confronted with their sin and have a, a shot to have their sin forgiven. 
So Jesus now has returned from preaching through all the synagogues in Galilee, and now he's at home. He's at a place where, when I think of home, I think of rest. I generally go there and try to just sit back and, and relax. From time to time, a party will break out and interrupt that. Last night's, yeah, birthday party for Hurley. Um, but Jesus, I would imagine when he returned home, was looking for some rest as well. But it didn't take long for the word to get out that Jesus was home and people flocked to him there. And what do we find him doing there? He's preaching the word of God to them. The very thing that he says, that is what I have come out for. So he goes to the synagogues and preaches there. And he goes home and the people come to him. Well, he's got an audience, so he's going to do what he came for. He's preaching the word. And that is what he's engaged in when we see the four guys bring in the paralytic. Jesus is faithfully fulfilling the calling that His heavenly Father has put on, on His life. And He's proclaiming the Word. And as He does that, we ask the question, what is it about Jesus that is drawing people unto Himself? It's a revelation of His divine nature. When Jesus is preaching the Word, the Gospel of God, there is something that people get a glimpse of, and that's His divine nature. And he reveals his divine nature even through the preaching of the word. So he's at home. There's so many people gathered there that there's no more room at the door. And it's in the midst of his preaching the word that up walk four faithful guys carrying a paralytic. And we're not told much about these guys, right? We don't know if they knew the paralytic or if they just saw him on a street corner and had compassion on him recognized his need and said, I've seen Jesus heal people before. I bet if we pick this guy up and take him to Jesus, Jesus will help. We don't know the story, but we do know that these guys recognize the need of the paralytic. And they recognize that Jesus could do something to help him. And they knew in their hearts that if they could bring this paralyzed man to Jesus, something good would happen. And they knew that so deeply that they would not be prevented from bringing this man to Jesus. When they came to the house and saw that there were so many people that there was no room for them, even at the door, to get through the door and to find access or gain access to Jesus, they went up to the roof. That's an unusual thing to do, isn't it? Now the houses that people had, typical houses back in the day, they had an external staircase. So making access to the roof was relatively easy. The roof was fairly sturdy. It was a place where they would work. It was a place where they would go out in the cool of the day and actually find rest, that sort of thing. So these four guys carry the paralytic up to the roof and they begin, while Jesus is preaching, mind you, they begin to unroof the roof. That's literally what the Greek reads. It says they unroofed the roof. Now the roofs of these houses back in the day, they, they were held up by heavy rafters, heavy logs that would provide the structure. And then there were lighter branches that were laid crosswise. And then on top of that, laying crosswise again, were lengths of grass, other branches, various foliage, and all of that was matted together and held together by mud. So can you imagine the mess that's coming down into the room as Jesus is preaching as these guys are unroofing the roof? 
They're breaking twigs, they're pulling grass apart, the mud is falling down, it's probably dusty in there. I can't imagine how distracting it would have been for Jesus to have been preaching and all of this going on. But the strangest part is, is they're doing this to somebody else's house. We would call this breaking and entering, right? This is a crime. But what does Jesus say when they let this paralytic down in front of them? Verse 5, it says, and seeing their faith. So here we have an action that many of us, if we were to see somebody doing that as we looked out, we would call that a crime, breaking and entering. But Jesus clearly looks at these guys doing the same thing and says, this is a faithful act. What's the difference between the two? Breaking and entering and an act of faith. It's the attitude of the heart. So Jesus is revealing by degrees His divinity, His divine authority through preaching the Word. And now when He sees these four men carry the paralytic to the house, unroof the roof in all the mess, and bring it down, the text says He saw their faith. Faith resides in the heart and the mind, right? Can you see that? Only God can discern the heart. So as Jesus perceives their faith, He is revealing a degree of His divinity because only God can perceive the heart. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And 1 Samuel 16.7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesus, when he sees this act that some would call vandalism, breaking and entering, he sees their faith. And when he discerns that they are having faith, he is revealing his divine nature because no human can judge another human's heart. And these guys were good friends, weren't they? I mean, I think we're taking liberalities with the text to call them a friend, but they were certainly acting like friends to see the need of this paralytic and to bring him to Jesus. Have you had friends like that in your life? I had a friend named Jason once. About the time the Lord was, was doing a, a refreshing work in my heart and, and had just brought me to, to faith in Christ, and he invited me to a promise keepers meeting. This was up in North Dakota, and it was going to be a, quite a journey, about a two-and-a-half-hour journey. So we met in a local town, myself and Jason, and another one of my college drinking buddies named Matt. And we were going to go up there to go to this Promise Keepers meeting. And it was one of those things where there was car trouble, and, and there was emotions were high. My friend Matt got in, and he was steaming mad. Something had gone wrong. Uh, in the communication with his wife, and somehow she felt taken surprised by him leaving for the day. And the whole thing almost didn't work. But we got up there. Jason was faithful to get both of us up there to this Promise Keepers meeting, and the Lord was powerfully at work. He revealed to me, fresh in the faith, that I was a workaholic that was neglecting my wife and that I needed to change the way I was living my life in order to be faithful to my wife. And my friend Matt, when the, when the speaker gave the invitation to trust Christ, I noticed that he was moving. 
when he was halfway down to the altar. I mean, he jumped up and sprinted to the altar. This rough, tough, he's a highway patrolman. He'll chase down criminals. He's a, he's a mean dude. But he runs down to the altar and trusts Christ. And now he is a faithful elder in a local church up in North Dakota that preaches the word from time to time. So God can do a mighty work through a friend, just a faithful act of a friend. And these guys are a wonderful model of what it means to be a witness to us. Do you have a friend like that? Has somebody played that role in your life? Are you a friend like that? Are you willing to play that, that kind of a role in other people's lives? Because that's one of the takeaways from today's passage is we see these guys going to great lengths to make sure the paralytic gets in front of Jesus, to bring him to Jesus. And I think we should be imitating these guys in looking around, in perceiving the needs of other people who are lost and hurting, who have presenting needs, and to recognize that, that they have a need to come to see Jesus and we're willing to stop at nothing to bring them to Him. Let's be a congregation of people who imitate the faith of these men. There's a clear link in the text between Jesus' perception of their faith and what He proclaims to the paralytic. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So remember the scene. He's, in, he's preaching in his house. The roof has been unroofed and there's bits of grass and mud and dust falling down, getting on likely Jesus because they did this right in front of him and the crowd who had gathered there to hear him. And the paralytic gets dropped down through the roof right in front of him. And it's obvious that the, the paralytic has a need. He's paralyzed. He can't move. His limbs are likely withered. And Jesus, anybody that was there, could see the need of this person. And Jesus' response to him is odd, is it not? Seeing somebody who needs physical healing, he looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus perceived that this paralytic had a deeper need than the presenting problem. He recognized that. And as Jesus recognized that, again, he, he revealed another degree of His divinity. He showed that He is God in the flesh. And that He discerned that this paralytic had a deeper need. A need for forgiveness. And this is a culture where there is a, a clear understanding of the link between a problem with sin and physical illness. Listen to Psalm 103. This is God who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. These two are closely linked. In John chapter 9, a man is born blind and, and the, uh, the disciples come up to Jesus and say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he would be born blind? That, that shows, that question that they ask shows an understanding between physical infirmity of some sort and the link with sin. There was a direct correlation so Jesus perceived a deeper need from sin. The deeper need of healing on the level of forgiveness for sin. And being the benevolent king, Jesus uses the best of his resources to meet the deepest need of the one in front of him. 
And in pronouncing forgiveness to that man, that paralytic, for his sins, he knew what it would cost him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order for Jesus to pronounce forgiveness for this man's sins, he knew that payment would have to be made for those sins. And he knew that he was going to be the one that would have to make it. And he was willing to be that perfect atoning sacrifice so that he could declare forgiveness to the paralytic sins. We have this Savior who sees our presenting problems. And each one of us knows what it's like to walk into a worship service like this this morning and have something on the forefront of our minds or something weighing heavy on our heart that we see as our presenting problem, our deep need, that if only this would change, life would be better. Jesus sees those needs. He sees my needs. He sees your needs. He knows them. And yet He looks at you and He he discerns that you have a deeper need. You have a need for forgiveness, just like this paralytic. We're not different from this paralytic by very much. Though we all were able to walk in here, under our own power, our deepest need is the same as this paralytic who needed forgiveness for his sins. And Jesus claimed his divine nature by pronouncing the paralytic's sins forgiven. He did this because only God can forgive sins. That's the clear testimony of the Scriptures. Listen to Exodus 34.7. The context here is Moses had gone up to receive the law. He came down the mountain with the tablets and he saw Israel worshiping the golden calf. And he got frustrated and he broke the tablets. And then he goes back up and he gets a second set. And this is what it says in Exodus 34, 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen to Isaiah 43, verse 25. I... I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. It is only God who can forgive sins because at the heart of sin is rebellion against God. And it's only the one who has been sinned against who can extend forgiveness. Our sins are a rebellion against God. And we need forgiveness. And it's only God that can pronounce that forgiveness. So when Jesus looks at the paralytic, sees clearly his presenting problem, but proclaims forgiveness for his sins, recognizing the deeper need, Jesus is revealing his divine nature because only God can forgive sins. Jesus pronounced forgiveness, and in his pronouncing of this forgiveness, he reveals his divinity. He reveals his God nature. And really, further than that, he's making a claim to honor. 
He is saying, I am God. I am worthy of honor. And we need to understand what, is, what else is going on in this passage, in this culture, because this is an honor and a shame-based culture, which is not like our culture. Our culture, the focal institution, is economics. And that is measured by the social value of wealth. In America, can we agree on that? Our institution is economics, and the way we honor people, for the most part, is their social standing in wealth. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, the, contempt, the focal institution was kinship as measured by honor, the social value of honor. Okay? Now, there is, there is, you get honor by belonging to the right family, by having association with the right groups, and um, furthermore, it is necessary to understand that, that family honor is on the line at every public interaction. Okay, so you are born into a certain family, and that family's reputation is now yours. And whatever honor that family has in the, in the society's eyes is ascribed to you, or you inherit that. Now, outside of that, you can gain honor or lose honor with every social interaction. It's like gaining face or losing face, right? Gaining trust. You following me? So now, Jesus is one who's proclaiming in the synagogues. He is teaching the word of God in the synagogues, which is the realm of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So they're beginning to look at him a little bit odd. And Jesus continues to do that. And now when he is preaching in his own house pronounces forgiveness of sin to the paralytic. He's making a claim to deity. He's making a claim to honor. And now the scribes are questioning him. Why would they do that? Because every social interaction is an opportunity to either gain or lose honor. The scholars call this interaction thing, they call it a social game, and it's called the challenge and repost. It generally has four elements and goes like this. It starts with a claim to honor. So we'll be standing in the marketplace or wherever, and somebody will make some sort of a claim to honor. Jesus just made a claim to honor by pronouncing forgiveness of sins and thereby declaring that he is God. Then there's a challenge where somebody would challenge that claim to honor. And the one who was challenged would then reply, that's called a repost, a quick reply. And this is all done in the public forum, and the, the public who is gathered there would, would act as judge and jury, and would then discern, okay, was the one who was claiming the honor, is he, did he properly defend his honor, and is he worthy of that honor? Or did the challengers uh, challenge him in such a way that he couldn't answer, and thereby the one who was challenged lost honor, but the challengers gained honor. Do you see how every social interaction now is a, a place to, to either gain or lose honor? So Jesus makes a claim to honor by claiming divinity. And the scribes, as we see in verse 6, now challenge Jesus. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They, they question him in his heart. And what does the next verse says? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. 
Again, Jesus now is revealing more of his divine nature because there's no other man who can discern what somebody else is thinking. Only God can discern the heart. So again, Jesus reveals his divine nature by discerning what these two, uh, these scribes were thinking. They were questioning in their hearts. God alone can discern the heart. Listen to 1 Kings 8, 39. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. And in Psalm 44, verse 21, for he, meaning God, knows the secrets of the heart. So Jesus, in his perceiving that the scribes were grumbling within themselves and challenging his honor, he is revealing to us, by degrees, his divinity, his divine nature. And then Jesus gives words to the unspoken challenge of the scribes. Verse 8, Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questions within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? He poses a a response to their challenge and asks them, which is easier, to pronounce forgiveness or to tell the men to rise and walk? Now, on the surface, it might be easier to pronounce forgiveness because how are you going to prove that you failed? You can't look at a person and know whether or not they're forgiven, right? So in that way, it might be easier for him because any miracle worker could tell the man to be healed and he could rise up and walk. But Jesus does this. He doesn't give them time to answer the question he poses to them. He says this in verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he arose, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So Jesus, in answer to his own question, commands the man, the paralytic, to rise and to pick up his bed and to go. He physically heals him right there as a demonstration of his ability to heal him spiritually by pronouncing his sins forgiven. Jesus answers his own question right there. So Jesus claims honor by declaring himself to be God, by pronouncing forgiveness to the paralytic. The scribes challenge him. And this is important for us to understand because this is the first story that Mark is going to tell of conflict. Chapter 2 is full of it, and it will um, end at verse 6 of chapter 3, where it will be at the the last of a series of four conflict stories where there's escalating conflict between Jesus and the scribes. And by the end of chapter 3, verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Why did they get so angry with Jesus because of this? That they wanted to meet with the Herodians to destroy him? Because every time they interact with Jesus in the social place, they lose honor. And Jesus gains honor because he's worthy of it. So keep an eye out for this exchange between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees as we continue to work our way through the book of Mark. This is going to be key in terms of why he then ends up walking toward the cross. Why people are 
demanding Him to be destroyed. Jesus is displaying His divinity. And the last step of the challenge and repost game is that the public then judges what just happened and declares a verdict. And what do we see that they say? Verse 12, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this before. Now it's helpful for us to understand some of the lingo in with this game. It's frequent that they would use words like glory, like they would use words like reputation, honor, and praise. That would be one of the ways that they would ascribe honor to someone when this social game of challenge and repost had gone. And Mark is clear to report that the crowd were amazed and they glorified God. So the, the crowd clearly says, Jesus, your honor stands. The scribes have challenged you, but your honor stands. And it stands because it's true. He is God. Jesus is the man standing before them. That's why in verse 10 it says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is undoubtedly human. He's standing before them and He's preaching to them. And as He uses this term to describe Himself, the Son of Man, this is the first time out of 14 times recorded in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus uses this as a self-title. And when He does, the scribes at least, probably the whole crowd, would recognize that He is making reference to what the prophet Daniel has said in chapter 7. And this points to the Son of Man who is going to be awarded a dominion. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus claims that He is the Son of Man, the one to whom has been entrusted or given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So He stands before them and says, I am that Son of Man, and so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that this Son of Man has divine authority. That's when he spoke to the paralytic, told him to rise, get up, pick up his bed, and go home. Proving his ability. Proving that he was who he says he was, that he was indeed worthy of that honor that he had clearly claimed before them that day. And the crowd responds appropriately by ascribing glory to God. They gave glory where glory was due. They recognized that Jesus was this one who was revealing His divine nature before them as He stood before them as a man and proclaimed the Word of God, saw the deeper need of the paralytic and pronounced forgiveness for his sins, perceived the act, which might be termed as vandalism of these four faithful men, perceived that act as faith, perceived the grumbling in the hearts of the scribes that it was there, though it was unspoken, he was able to perceive that and then prove that he was who he said he was 
by healing the man, thus verifying that his sins were indeed forgiven. Jesus continues to minister. He continues to meet people at their need, not just the presenting need, but the deepest need. And that means He is able to do that for you and for me as well. Jesus knows the need that was on your heart and on your mind as you walked in here today. And He is able to meet that need. But He sees your deeper need, a need to be connected to or reconnected to your God. And He says to you, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for my burden is light, my yoke is easy, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is offering life to all of us who will accept Him as Savior by faith. And He promises, just like we were singing this morning, to clothe us with His righteousness when we trust Him by faith. That is what is before us today. Let's take some time now to pray. Jesus has revealed Himself to us, and He has been as we have been reading and preaching our way through the book of Mark. And now He's shown us more clearly than than before this that He is the God-man. And we will see that that is what is required to purchase our salvation. Jesus has claimed and demonstrated His divinity. That means He's worthy of our worship. Just like the crowd glorified God in response to who He was and in His response to to defend His honor, we too must glorify God and worship Him. Jesus has met our deepest need and He's willing to do that for each of you if you'll trust Him by faith. If you haven't trusted Him yet, today can be that day. He's holding His hand out to you saying, trust me, I'll give you life. Even if you've trusted Him before, another another day is here. And it's another opportunity to recognize our need and to trust Him for today. So Jesus holds His hand out to you and He invites you to trust Him. So let's worship Him. Let's witness of who He is. Let's be like those four faithful friends who recognize the needs of others, recognize that Jesus is their answer, and will stop at nothing to bring that person to Jesus. Let's be a congregation who is willing to be that that kind of person. And in our witness, let's imitate these four faithful friends, recognizing that Jesus will meet the deepest need who He is. Let's sit in silence now and ask what the Lord would have us do, how He would have us respond in response to this good news. I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise You for who You are. We thank You that You gave us Your Son, that He was fully man and is fully man, and that He is, as we have seen so clearly in this text, fully God. What a marvelous Savior You have provided for us. We worship You and we thank You. We sit in silence now before You and ask that You would show us how it is You want us to respond to these truths. What are You asking of us? Where where ought we trust You? Whether for the first time or for the hundred and first time.
Lord, would you empower us to be faithful witnesses that look a lot like these four friends who brought the paralytic to Jesus? Would you help us to look around us and to recognize need to bring people to Jesus? We want to see you worshipped and honored and glorified in that way. We want to partner with you in your work to that end. So Lord, we present ourselves to you now. We ask that you would lead us by your Spirit. Show us what you have in mind. And that you'd be worshipped and glorified as you do that. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.